Okay, last week at the end of the message, well, first, uh, let's look at the book again. Uh, today's week one of a 12-week series. I introduced it last week, but I didn't, today we're going to dig right into it. It's based on this book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. The subtitle is The Path to Spiritual Growth. And so uh, there are 12, well, 13 chapters, uh, if you count the intro, but 12 spiritual disciplines that he covers here. And I would encourage you to picture the circuit training part of your gym where they teach you one machine and then they show you what the next machine's like. And, and you know, one machine works out one muscle, another machine works out another part of the body. And we'll go into, we'll go into uh, one discipline a week for the next 12 weeks, and this is week one. Um, and last week at the end of the service, I read this quote by Leo Tolstoy that says, everyone thinks of changing humanity and no one thinks of changing himself. And when I read that, I saw you nodding. I, I felt I, I took that as affirmation that you're 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 for this. You know, there's a lot of things that the that the world needs, a lot of problems that we can see out there in the world. But if we don't start with ourselves, we're not going to be equipped to do the things God's called us to. And so that's what I want to do, and that's what I encourage. So let's let's start on the inside and work from the inside out. What we're going to do is three months with there are three categories of spiritual disciplines, and uh, four in each category. So we're going to do three months, one month on each. And as you look at these lists, if you're like me, you'll find some things that are part of your past, some things that you practice regularly, some things maybe that you used to do more than you do now, and some things, if you're like me, that you, you really need to learn. And, uh, and that's what I'm seeing. And so I encourage you to use this as a time to dig deeper. You know, what you, what you know, make sure you know and, and put it into practice. The things that are new... Well, let's give them a try. Let's see if we can uh, strengthen our walk. Again, I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm talking about spiritual health. Let's see if we can make ourselves healthier in a way that's biblical, in a way that's time-honored. Uh, I was kind of amazed uh, at the variety uh, and the number and variety of different religious traditions that Foster quotes from in affirming these different spiritual disciplines. So let's take a look. The inward disciplines are meditation, that's what we're starting with today, prayer, fasting, and study. And so this is like a schedule for the next three months. The outward disciplines are simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. Very alliterative, that, that list. Can you see how we're kind of swimming upstream in 21st century society with a list like that? And then the corporate disciplines are the ones we do together, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. So that's cool. We get to end with the celebration, and we'll know we're done with this series, and it's time to move on. You know, we... We don't live in a world, our world has lots of advantages, and, and I, you know, I teach history. The more I know about history, the more I, I'm glad I live here and not then, because uh, there's a lot of stuff we have and love and enjoy, like, I mean, just hot and cold running water and, and things like that, that, uh, that, that history doesn't seem all that romantic and appealing to me. It was dirty and hard and smelly, and I like living here. Uh, so, but our world does not promote quiet reflection. Uh, the be still and know that I am God requires that we, we sort of swim against the tide of our society. Carl Jung, it's interesting to me, I get to quote him today. He said, hurry is not of the devil, it is the devil. And yet, you know, we can learn to set aside time for quiet reflection. We can learn to, to, to set aside what we, what we thought we were doing or what we thought we should be doing in order to focus on God. Thomas Merton says that true contemplation is not a psychological trick, but a theological grace. It's, it's a, a gift given to us by God. Now, 
this is one of those things that in my own life, I'll do a little confession time here, I, uh, I've had kind of a mixed journey. Uh, ironically, church planting and contemplative prayer aren't really consistent paths. Uh, the, if, you're, if you're called, if you feel called to a life of contemplative prayer, it'd probably be easier to do that if you don't plant a church because sometimes the duties and challenges of that just require a whole lot of just busy stuff. And, uh, and I, I find it very joyful and fulfilling. Uh, but I've been convicted at times that my devotional life in some ways isn't as rich as it was years ago. There, there was a season in my life where I never missed. Now, some of you who know me and, 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 and have known me for a while know that some of that was fear more than love of God. I didn't want to go back to being who I used to be. And so I, just, I wanted to keep the system going. Uh, but... Uh, I would, you know, every day for you know, 30 minutes or an hour a day, I spent time in meditation. And those quiet times, you know, changed me. You know, God, God used those times to, to, to help me grow. And, and it's a little bit of a sad thing to me that, that I'm not as faithful with that today as I was 12 years ago. Yet, Yet, yet I also believe that we go through seasons where God gives us the grace to have, have, have plenty of energy and ability for one thing, and other times he calls us to other things that, that challenge that. But in my own temperament, I'm, I'm a little more Martha than Mary. Um, I, I like to tell my students that I invented multitasking back in the 60s before we called it that. You know, that I, I like to do, I, I, I often do two or three things at once. But as I've meditated on this particular issue in my, in my recent life, I felt some conviction in my own life about seven-day weeks. That's an easy trap to fall into if you're involved in ministry in any way. I know Walter knows what I'm talking about. I know many of you who work here uh, who are, you know, hold leadership positions here or in, in ministry in any way. It's real easy to let a couple weeks pass and like, when was there a day off in there? And, and, and I felt some conviction that I need to be more careful about that, you know, just for the sake of obedience and for the sake of, of being able to fulfill what God's called me to for the long term. I need to not be so reckless with my time, reckless with my schedule, and so arrogant to think that things can't get done without my help. You know, that's, there's some pride in there uh, that, I, that has to go away. Um, and yesterday uh, was kind of a funny experience because it, it messed with me a little bit. I, my Saturday yesterday was sort of like a typical Saturday lately. I got up early. I just kind of like to do that now. It's a weird thing about this age. But uh, I, uh, I got up early and spent a few hours working on the message like I do most Saturdays. Um, I spent a couple hours reflecting on how lucky I am to, to be married to Gina, which is uh, something I do every Saturday too. Uh, I didn't tell that joke in the first service because she was sitting right there, but that's all. Since she's gone now, I can I can embarrass her. I did a little shopping, a little exercise, a little reading, but mostly I didn't work as hard yesterday as I normally do. And then I stopped by here um, yesterday evening, and I realized how much work had happened here, and I didn't do it. And it messed with me just a little bit. Uh, and after I beat down the false guilt, I I, I came to believe. I realized no, I. I I was pretty obedient this week, and and a whole lot of other people were too, and and way beyond the the normal call, and I and I do think I spent my Saturday like I was supposed to, um, although it was odd for me not to be in the middle of the work that was happening here. So, 
I just I want to say again, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm thankful to all of you who helped do it. It looks fabulous. And, uh, and, uh, and, and this is, an, I see an example for how going with my temperament or going with just the world's flow, I could have, I could have deceived myself into thinking, no, I got to be there. And, and I think that would, that might have been disobedient. So anyway, uh, that's my own little confession time. Let's go back to the Bible. What's, what's the Bible say about meditation? There are two different words uh, in the Hebrew for meditation, and they're used 58 times in the Bible. It can mean listening to God's word. It can mean ruminating on God's law. Ruminating is kind of a disgusting word picture. Do you remember what that word means? Ruminating means it's what a cow does. It, it, it uh, gets the grass. It chews it up, swallows it. A little bit later brings it back and chews on it some more and then swallows it some more and does that for quite a while. That's ruminating. Now, you wouldn't want to do that with any of your food, but the, the Bible uses that word, ruminate, to describe what we do with Scripture. Digest it. So when, when's it. when do you bring it up? I think circumstances of life bring it up. You ever been in a situation where it's like, oh, you know, there's just this verse comes to mind or wonder if this applies? Well, it's time to chew on it again and swallow it again and, and, and change behavior if need be. Um, um, meditation means reflecting on God's work. It's not all in your head, though. Biblical meditation ought to lead to change behavior, or we're not doing it right. Uh, take a look at Psalm 119, a uh, couple passages. The psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, so for you yourself have taught me. Repentance and obedience are key features of meditation. And we find lots of examples of meditation in the scriptures. Uh, the first one I could find goes all the way back to Genesis with Isaac. It says in Genesis 24 that Isaac had come from Bir Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. Now, I don't know what, what, what he was thinking about, what he was pondering about or praying about out there. But it's interesting to me that a patriarch from 4,000 years ago practiced this thing that we're going to talk about today. This isn't some... Um, new invention of Eastern religions or New Age thinkers. Meditation is a, a, a God-given spiritual discipline. Uh, the psalmist says in 63.6, On my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night. Psalm 119.148, My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. I know you've had the feeling where you go to bed and you're sleeping and things are going well, and then you wake up and you're wondering, what in the world am I awake for? It's not time to get up. I got a few hours more to sleep. I got to work tomorrow. Why am I, you know, why am I staring at the ceiling? Why, why are my eyes open now when I should be sleeping? Well, I think that's, that's a time to meditate. I think that's a time to pray, and uh, and that's that's a uh, that's the psalmist example, and that seems to me like a good way to make use of the time. It's interesting to me that the Psalms, 150 Psalms, uh, the sort of Israel's hymn book start off like this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Eli meditated. He taught meditation to Samuel. Isaiah and Jeremiah meditated, and of course Jesus did too. Matthew 14, 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now this was a habit of Jesus. You know, he was Pursued by crowds often, but he made a time and made a place for him to be alone with God. And that was his habit. It would be a good habit for us as well. 
Meditation means the ability to hear God and to obey him. And if we hear without obeying, then that's an incomplete response, of course. God desires fellowship with us. Since the Garden of Eden, it's been God's will to have intimate fellowship with us. Now, since the fall, that's been awkward for us and more difficult. Um, many of us seem more comfortable with distance, and we can, con we can relate to what the Israelites said to Moses here in Exodus 20. The people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain with smoke. They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And so, you know, in the Catholic Church, it's very common to pray through intermediaries because, you know, being close to God is, is, is seen as, as, as just too much, too much too soon. But uh, we don't believe that. Since Jesus came, we are to come boldly before the throne of grace. And paradise is being restored and we, we get to enjoy, we're invited to enjoy intimate fellowship with God. And meditation is a way to accept that invitation. In the fullness of time, Jesus came and he taught that the reality of the kingdom of God, he taught about the reality of the kingdom of God, and he showed with his life what that life would look like. That when the kingdom of God reigns, this is what it's going to look like. John 14, 10, he said, The words I say to you are not just my own, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus knew he was going to leave the disciples, but he promised his Holy Spirit. In John 16, 13, he said, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And then most of you know this or have heard this before, that Luke is one of the biographers of Jesus. He wrote a gospel called Luke, uh, but it's all about Jesus. And then he wrote a sequel to that, and that's the book of Acts. That the book of Acts is really volume two of Luke's history of Jesus and his followers and the early church. And in Acts, Luke makes it plain that Jesus wasn't done teaching after the, his death and resurrection and ascension, that he continued to teach. Uh, let's go back to Deuteronomy. Moses made a prophecy about Jesus in Deuteronomy 18.15. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your, old brother, from, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So who's Moses talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And if you look at Acts 3.22 and Acts 7.37, you'll see that both Peter and Stephen quote this Deuteronomy passage and say Jesus fulfilled it. So Jesus came to teach us, and he continued to teach the early church all through the book of Acts. In chapter 8, he shows Philip how to reach new, unreached cultures. He, in chapter 9, he, he knocks Paul flat on the road to Damascus to reveal his identity. In chapter 10, he teaches Peter about his Jewish nationalism and, and, and shows him that it's time to open up to the Gentiles. And in chapter 15, he continues that. Jesus is uh, helping the church come out of its cultural captivity. Jesus is continuing to teach his people even after the resurrection and ascension. This is the biblical foundation of meditation. Jesus is resurrected, and yet he's still at work. He is still our priest, he's our prophet, he's our king, and he's our shepherd. And, and we should look to him in each of those offices to, to, to mediate for us before God, to guide us in truth, to command us. If he's our king, then what am I? You know, he's the boss. And, and our shepherd, and he's a good shepherd. He's a gentle shepherd. He's got, he's got that crook. Sometimes I don't like it, but he's got it, and he, and, and he uses it for my blessing. Take a look. I'm going to start quoting from a wide variety of believers throughout history. Um, and just notice the, the wide variety of church traditions they come from. 
These are not just non-denominational Protestant 21st century American witnesses. They come from all over the place. My first and my favorite, as you'll see in a minute, Theophon the Recluse. Um, now, most of you who've been here for a while, I know, can see right through me. Uh, it's not that much what he says, but I just am excited. This is my sixth year doing this, about 50 messages a week, I mean a year over, over the last, 50 messages a week, or a year over the last six years. This is my first time quoting Theophan the Recluse, and I just think that's a pretty cool name. Evidently, he needed to get out more, but he had some... <laughs> He had some good ideas about meditation. Look at what he said. To pray is to descend with the mind into the heart and there to stand before the face of God, ever-present, all-seeing within you. Very poetic way to describe meditation. Now, and check out what these other guys say. This is an Anglican, Jeremy Taylor. He says, meditation is the duty of all. The Lutheran pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, says, I meditate because I'm a Christian. Madame Guyton, I, I don't know what church tradition she comes from. Uh, she referred to it as plumbing the depths of Jesus Christ. And then Thomas Akempis, a, a Catholic monk in the Middle Ages, said that meditation takes you into a familiar friendship with Jesus. What's the purpose of meditation? It's to restore that fellowship with God that, that, he, that he intended from the beginning, but that's been broken by our sin. Um, some of you... You know, I, I was surprised. I thought it would just take people my age or older to know this, but I did a little survey in the, uh, in the first service, and, and even many of the young folks had heard this. Have you heard an old hymn that has these words, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own? R raise your hand if you've heard that before. I'm just kind of curious. All right, well, gosh, that's not as old as I thought it was. Well, that's, that's what meditation is like. That's, that's the fellowship, the intimacy that God desires with us. We often quote Revelations 3.20 as kind of out of context as an evangelistic verse, but Revelation 3.20 was very plainly spoken to believers, to, to the church, and it says this, here I am, this is Jesus talking, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, sometimes that's used as sort of an invitation to salvation, but that's not the way, that's not what Jesus meant when he spoke it. He was speaking to the church, and he was saying, I want to have intimate fellowship with you. Will you open that door? Will you accept that invitation? This is my favorite verse that I've, I've found in the last month on this, on this subject. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going for. This is the goal of meditation. If, it doesn't, if our contemplation doesn't produce this kind of life, then, then I guess we need to keep doing it or do it differently or something like that. There are lots of misconceptions about meditation. When I mention the word, uh, the word meditation has kind of been co-opted by Eastern religions and modern New Age thinkers to mean something that it's really not. And so I want to dispel some of the misconceptions. It's not weird. It's not hard. It's not solely impractical. It's not, it, some might think it's even dangerous, but it's not. Uh, the first thought of it being impractical is, I think, have you heard the phrase, you know, somebody who was so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good, which strikes me as kind of a serious insult. But uh, that's, that's sort of the knock on contemplative-minded people, that they're, they're so busy communing with God that they can't function in the real world. Or it, we've, we've known kind of a tradition of believers who would equate the word prophetic with socially inept, um, as if you, know, you can't be both. You can't, you can't listen to God and, and communicate with people. 
And, and I just don't believe that. I, I, I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I don't believe the examples of, of people in the Bible show that. There were definitely some Old Testament prophets that, that had strange interpersonal relationships, no doubt. But I don't think that the, the model of Jesus was that we get to be closer to God by being more distant and, and weird in our personal relationships. Christian meditation as a spiritual discipline leads to action. And if it doesn't lead to action, we're, we're, I think we're not doing it right. It should lead us to action, to obedience and repentance. The, the dangerous part. Um, maybe you've heard the story. There's a, Jesus told a story in one of the Gospels about a demon being cast out and like the house being swept clean and he comes back with seven more and the guy's worse off than he was before. You know, Eastern, Eastern religions often teach meditation as a way to empty, empty your mind, you know, so you'd be ready for nirvana or whatever. Um, there, is, there is definitely, I think, an appropriate level of detachment that comes with meditation. When I, when I'm, when I meditate on the things of God, I do want to turn off the TV and, and, and not sit in front of the computer and, and not answer the phone. I do want to detach. But if it's only detachment, we're only halfway there. We detach from the things of the world, the distractions, and it, that detachment needs to be followed by an attachment. And that's, that's when meditation is complete. I come back to this over and over again. I can't remember how many times I've quoted Peter Lord. Um, the book, Hearing God, that he wrote was, was instrumental in my life as a, as a disciple of Jesus. And he... His word picture reminds me of this detachment, attachment thing. He spoke about getting air out of a cup and how hard it is to get the air out of a cup. And if we're trying to, to get free of whatever's bothering us or whatever we're thinking about instead of God, and you try to shake it out like getting the air out of a cup, you can't do it on your own. And yet science fans know there is a way to get air out of a cup, and that is to fill it with water. And so you fill, the, fill it with water, the liquid displaces the air, and there it goes. And so now you, you, you do have the air out of a cup, and that's, that's I think, what we're talking about here. We, we can't empty ourselves unless we fill ourselves with things of God, and that's what Christian meditation's about. It's not hard. Thomas Merton, I think, yeah, said, meditation is really very simple, and there's not much need of elaborate techniques to teach us how to go about it. In fact, I'd suggest that most of you, most of you have done it. Have you ever read a passage in the Bible thought about what it means and said, I need to change something in my life. That's Christian meditation. That's, that's all it is. It's as simple as that. Um, now, and, and it sounds overly simple, but it's also quite common for us to read something in the Bible and say, hmm, that doesn't match up to me. I need to look for an explanation for why I can keep doing what I'm doing or, or why that doesn't mean what I think it means or, or I'm not ready for that or, or it's very easy uh, because of our flesh and the world we live in to sort of, sort of dismiss some of those things. But when you take God's standards and apply them to your life and then change your life, you have meditated, you have practiced this spiritual discipline. And I know, I know, I know the people in this room. I know you've done that. <clears throat> it's not impractical. W William Penn, the same Penn, Pennsylvania Penn, <clears throat> he said this about it. True godliness does not turn men out of the world but enables them to live better in it and excites their endeavors to mend it. I like that. That's, that's what we ought to be doing. That, that's, that's what it's going to do for us. Meditation starts with desiring the presence of God. Now, here's another song lyric that kind of convicts me because I'm 
because I'm not there yet, only to sit and think of God, oh, what a joy it is, to think the thought, to breathe the name, earth has no higher bliss. Now, this is one of those things, if we leave that up there for a while and look at it, we can start developing this ripple of false guilt through the room. Because most of us just, that's, that doesn't describe us. It doesn't describe me most of the time. This is not our natural state. Because of Adam's fall and the imputed sin to all the rest of us, it's not going to come naturally. It's not going to be your default setting to desire the things of God. Yet it's a gift from God. And if you look at this and you say, that's not me, ask for the gift. And let's do that today. When we go to the prayer time, if, if, if this isn't your heart, oh, I just can't wait to sit in the presence of God, ask God to give you the gift of desiring him more. He has the power to change your heart. And he, I know he's got the power to change your heart. I, I can give one very simple example. If you had told me when I was in my 20s that, you know, when you play in a church, you won't have time to watch sports on TV anymore. I would have said to you, that's why I'm not going to have anything to do with playing in a church. I've never given up watching sports on TV. What, what would my life be like? There's just no chance. And, and to tell the truth, I haven't given up watching sports on TV. I just don't get to it as much as I used to. It's, you know, it's not real high on my priority list. I'd still like to do it, but it just doesn't come up a whole lot anymore. Um, and, and yet, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm missing out. There's no part of me that says, oh, boy, if only I could watch some football this afternoon, I'd be okay. Um, how did that happen? God changed me. And if I had tried to resolve that, I, I, I didn't seem to have the power to do it. and never really had the desire to give up watching sports on TV. God just changed me. And, and it's... It's still okay. I mean, I still think it's a, when I get to do it, I think it's a cool thing. But I sure don't mind it when I don't get to it. And that, that tells me that I'm not the same guy I was um, 20 years ago. Teresa of Avila says, As I could not make reflection with my understanding, I contrived to picture Christ within me. She's talking about the difference between our head and our heart, the difference between what we can comprehend and what we can imagine. And because meditation involves imagination, many people don't trust it. Because the imagination isn't a totally trustworthy thing, is it? Uh, Romans 1.21 says, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Well, this is one of the places our imagination can get us if we're not careful. So how do we avoid that? It's a legitimate concern. If I let my imagination run wild, you know, because of my flesh, because of the world, it might take me some dark place. I don't want to go. Well, here's where we, I think we trust God. We depend on God. And what I found in my own life is we can submit to others and sort of uh, allow God to use them as sort of a safety net to keep us, to protect us from our own misapprehensions, our own wayward imaginations. I, I've got a couple examples about this. About 10 years ago, I thought it would be a good thing at, at my last church where I, I was leading the youth group there, and I thought it would be a good thing after um, Bible study on Friday night for us to have like a cafe sort of coffee shop thing for a few hours. Uh, and then we'd close up like late on Friday night, and I thought it would just be kind of a safe, nice place for the kids to hang out and fellowship and all that stuff. And I can remember when I first pitched this idea to my family at the dinner table, my daughter kind of looked at me, and Allison said, are you saying every Friday night? And I remember she, she was kind of freaked out by that concept, but ultimately all three of them came to feel like that that was a good idea and that we should do it. And, and, and that, they, could have, they could have knocked it down right then. But after, after they sort of got on board with the idea, I, I wrote a letter to the elders of our church, and I said, 
this is what I've been thinking about this thing. This seems like it might be a good idea. What do you think? And again, God could have protected me from my own foolish imagination at that point in the process. But, but he didn't. You know, they said, well, that sounds like a great idea to us. You know, go for it. And so the, the church looked sort of like this. We, it was a lot of work. We'd tear it down every Friday night, put up cafe tables, and then Friday night we cleaned up and, and, and put it back and made it look like a church. You know, I don't know how much good I did for the teenagers in doing all that, but I know God used that time to prepare me for the ministry I do now because I spent much more time cleaning the bathrooms and stacking the chairs than I did instructing the kids and and God developed some things in me that I needed you know, for this next stage and I, I had no clue that was coming then but I could see God use that and use sort of the process I had this thing in my imagination and I submitted to submitted it to authority and they affirmed and I went with it and God protected me and it didn't mean it was perfect I, was, I sure was tired of doing it by the time it was over but uh, but but it, God, God used that to equip me for the next season. Or, or a more recent example. I don't know how long Diane spent meditating on the pain inside the church, but evidently her, her reflections led her to conclude, it's time for a new paint job. Um, and maybe even a different color scheme. And she, she sort of submitted that idea, and, uh, and she, got, she got the go-ahead and, uh, and, and a little budget and a bunch of eager volunteers. And... Uh, Hallelujah. Uh, thank you. Thanks again for, uh, for thinking of the idea and mobilizing the team and all you guys who were here. I'm, I'm grateful for that. But if, if her imaginations had led her into some wackiness by, by going through the process, you know, we could have helped her. We could have said, eh, no, we, don't want it, we, don't, we don't want it all black. It seems, that seems too dark. You know? How do you prepare for this? Is there a proper time for meditation, a proper place, a proper posture? Um, Brother Lawrence in, in, in olden days and Thomas Kelly more recently would have said, any time, any place. Brother Lawrence wrote a book, maybe many of you have heard of it, called Practicing the Presence of God. Does that ring a bell, some of you? And he, I think, worked in the kitchen in a monastery. And, and the, the story I remember that at one point he was stirring the stew and had this, this moment of communion with God as he was stirring the stew. He saw God in the soup, I think is how he wrote it. And I don't know how that works exactly. Uh, and and my, my thinking is that these guys are better at it than me. And, and my recommendation is to schedule it. You know, I find that uh, if, if I don't schedule it, the other things on the schedule will push out things. And so I, I encourage you not to let the tyranny of the urgent take the place of what's really important. And communion with God is important. It's important enough to, to have a place on your schedule. What's the proper place? No real rules about that, but it seems just logical to go for a place that's quiet and free from interruptions. I prefer a place where the electronics are, are, are not there and where there's some view of nature, because you know, that's God's work, that's God's painting. And so you know, my back porch is the, my favorite place because I can see trees and hear birds and I can't hear the phone or see the computer or anything like that. Proper posture, absolutely no rules, although very practically if I were to lay prone and meditate, you know, very soon I would meditate on the scripture that God gives us beloved rest, and I'd be asleep, right? And I'd say, well, I'm going to hear, and I, I, I think of that, and I'm obeying right away. But, but uh, you know, so somehow, but I mean, if you want to hang out with the cool kids in yoga class, you can cross your legs and lift your hands up like this. It doesn't matter. Just some way where you're comfortable enough to, to stay for a while, but not so comfortable that you, that you can't stay focused. 
What are the forms? We're going to look at four forms, and I'm going to encourage you to, to pick one of these out and try them over the week. The, uh, uh, the, the medieval thinkers uh, had a name for a very simple idea. They called it meditatio scripturarum, and you don't have to speak Latin to understand. That's meditating on scripture. And that's really the most common way, the way that we, you know, that we learn to do quiet times or devotions. We read a scripture. We ask the Holy Spirit what he would show us from that. You can do it in a pretty short time, but that's, that's probably the one that, that you've most commonly practiced. Um, in, mid, in the Middle Ages, they had a phrase called recreation, and the Quakers called this centering down. That will require a little explanation. I'll talk about that for a moment. Meditation on creation and meditation on contemporary events. These are, are two other ways. And I encourage you to just, just try a new one this week. Or, you know, you overachievers can try all four if you want. But my recommendation is that you try, try at least one of these between now and next Sunday. Meditation upon Scripture, it's a good place to start. It's, it's something I bet many of you have done before. I bet many of you have been through the process. I'm going to start doing this regularly, and then you quit and felt guilty about that. And, you know, quit feeling guilty, but just, just try, it, try it again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, just as you do not always, excuse me, just as you do not analyze the words of someone you love, but accept them as they're said to you, accept the word of Scripture and ponder it in your heart as Mary did. That is all. That is meditation. Or I like what Alexander White says about putting yourself in the story. Um, imagine yourself walking the streets with Jesus and seeing the dusty paths and, and smelling the smells of the New Testament world. White says, with your imagination anointed with holy oil, you again open your New Testament. At one point, you're the publican. At another time, you're the prodigal. At another time, you're Mary Magdalene. At another time, Peter in the porch, till your whole New Testament is all over autobiographic of you. Well, it's mostly, it's mostly biographic of Jesus, but how much more valuable if I'm in the story too? And as I give in my testimony, at times I've described myself as the prodigal son. At other times I feel like the prostitute who used her tears to wash the feet of Jesus because she'd been forgiven much and therefore she loved much. And if we can place ourselves in these stories with Jesus, I think we can, the, the words he spoke become more real to us. This, this second one, recollection or centering down. I'll just show you a very simple exercise for doing this. Think about the thing that's bugging you this week that you can't get rid of. Maybe it's you're worried about finances or you're, uh, you're sick of being sick or you're, you're, you know, you're plotting revenge against your arch enemy, you know, whichever one of those things. And a picture of that in your hands, and you, you can use your hands, your real hands, if you want to for this. Palms down and palms up is what it's called. And I don't know how long you take with your palms down to let go of it. But, you know, actively turn your palms down and say the words. I'm letting go of that. I don't need to hold on to that fear, that resentment, that worry, that whatever, that temptation. And then, you know, that seems like the detachment part. And then let's do the attachment part. God, give me something else. God, put something in. Give, fill me with something that will take the place of that. I'm letting go of that and giving that up. What will, you get, what will you give me to replace it? And then wait for an answer. Maybe you'll get an answer, maybe not. Maybe you need to do it again tomorrow. But uh, that strikes me as a very simple little exercise that would be very healthy. The third one, meditation on creation. In Romans 1, Paul predicted a time where we would worship the creator and not, excuse me, worship the creation and not the creator. And I think our society has shown the fulfillment of that, right? We, there are a lot of people who love nature but wouldn't acknowledge God. And yet for us, don't we see nature as pointing to the glory of God? 
Uh, Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So let, let the, the beauty of nature show us the magnificence of God. And then finally, meditation on the significance of contemporary events. In my own life, I've been spending a lot of time uh, thinking about politics. You know, we're bombarded with messages from all different directions and, and really pulls on the church um, to, to participate in this process. And I've been spending a lot of time you know, praying and thinking about what, what is the, our proper role in this. I don't have any answers for you just yet, but uh, I've, just, I've been chewing on that one. Thomas Merton says, the, the one who has meditated on the passion of Christ but has not meditated on the extermination camps of Dachau and Auschwitz has not yet fully entered into the experience of Christianity in our time. What he's saying is we need to chew on the events of our day and ask the Holy Spirit to show us, what does the Bible say about this? What, what should my response to this be? Now, finally, I've got some reading to recommend, and mostly they come from, from Foster's uh, bibliography. They're the ones he quotes. Uh, uh, Guyton's Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ, Bonhoeffer's The Way to Freedom. Uh, the only one on this list I've read is Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ. Um, it's kind of, he was sort of a medieval monk and it's a devotional work. And I don't recommend, if you want to pick it up and try to read it, I don't recommend reading it as a novel. It's, it's kind of challenging reading. Uh, but it's, it's broken up into small readings and it's very good for a devotional. You know, one, one little chunk a day like you would read maybe our utmost for his highest or something like that. Um, I, I read it that way about 10 years ago, and I thought it was good. Thomas Merton, uh, Foster quotes him a lot, and, and same with Alexander White. So I'm going to finish with this. Practice this week. My, about 12 years ago, I went to a Promise Keepers uh, conference, and Juan Carlos Ortiz was my favorite speaker, and, or, or the one that just lit me up the most, and I've referred to this teaching over and over again. He said, what made Jesus a good teacher? How do you know Jesus was a good teacher? And, and, and he said, he gave a message to his disciples, go out two by two and, and heal people. And what happened, what happened after he gave that message? They did it. They went out and they healed people. They didn't meet him at the back door and shake his hand and say, oh, that was very interesting. I'm going to think a lot about that this week. You've given me food for thought. When, when Jesus taught, they, they, they responded to his teaching. So do you want to sit under the teaching of a good teacher? Well, I'll be, I'll be back there shaking your hand when you go, but we don't learn meditation out of a book, and, we're, and, and we could try to practice it here with silence, but I think that would be awkward um, and probably ineffective. You're going to be better off trying this on your own, but between now and next Sunday, try one of these things, the, just the meditation on Scripture, the palms down. I, I wrote it backwards there. It's palms down, palms up. Um, meditate on creation or on contemporary events. Let, let's give it a try. Uh, let's pray. God, I thank you for uh, this congregation. Lord, I thank you for your message. I thank you for this, this book. I thank you for the, the solid biblical foundation and the solid foundation of other writers. Uh, and Lord, I ask that you would help us to stand on the shoulders of giants and, and, and reach for you. And Lord, I ask that you would give us the gift of desiring you more. And Lord, I ask that you would give us the ability to follow through on our commitments. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.